Hi, you're listening to the Art Grime Podcast, coming to you from a hole in the wall on Manhattan's Upper East Side. I'm your host, Marshall Jones. I'm Kim Power. This is Tuntoretto. <laughs> and, and tonight we're drinking half water, half Johnny Walker red with Peter Drake. Drake discusses his relationship with his gallery, Linda Warren Projects, his friendships, and the thinking behind his uncanny dystopian representations of popular culture of the 1970s and the suburban myth. Listen to the end to hear the secret of his success. I just want to highlight some of the things that have happened in your very long and illustrious career because it's kind of amazing everything that you've gotten done. Um, So uh, 26 solo shows uh, with Linda Warren Projects, is that right? Not all with Linda, including including Linda, Linda, yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, And then also you've shown all over the States and in Germany, group shows in China, on the East and West Coasts and in the Midwest as well. It sounds kind of funny, like putting the Midwest in after China. <laughs> right. <laughs> to me, you know, the Midwest so could be Wisconsin <laughs> isn't very high. <laughs> in fact, you, Linda, you show with Linda Warren in Chicago, yeah. right? So yeah. why, how did that happen? Like, It's actually kind of funny because um, Linda was, she actually didn't even have a gallery at the time that we met. Oh. And she actually called me out of the blue. She'd been just sort of, you know, surfing the internet and found my website, which was up to date at the time. Huh. And she just called me out of the blue. And the first time we talked, we talked for like two hours straight. And it was wow. really emotional. It was really connected. She understood what I was doing. And at the time, she was acting as a consultant, and she just wanted to sort of broaden her scope a little bit. She knew she was going to be moving to Chicago because she was getting married at the time. And when she moved to Chicago, I think she realized that it was going to be really easy for her to sort of, like, get overwhelmed by, you know, the social life there and just being like a suburban mom kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want that to happen. And she was very clear about her identity as a creative person. So within a year, she opened a gallery, and I think I was the second show there or something like that. And oh, wow. And just, then she opened up in New York afterwards? or No, she hasn't, doesn't have a space in New York. She's oh, okay, thinking I'm confused. She, okay. she may be opening a space in L.A. I'm, I'm not really sure. You know, she's going to be moving out. She's going to be living in both places, basically. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh how interesting, because I thought, did you live at some point in the Midwest. So I just thought that was very odd. You're really, uh, to no, me, I mean, you're like she really, a New Yorker. So. Yeah, I know. And she really made my audience there. She's somebody who knows everybody in Chicago. She's super, super friendly. She's also one of those dealers that is extremely like artist-friendly. She's the type of person who wants... When I was in the studio full time, we would talk almost every day, like either driving to work or whatever. Wow. And I would just be on the wow. f- phone painting and talking to her at the same time and it was just a completely organic thing oh that's, that's so, so cool great. to have yeah, that kind of so relationship great. yeah that's amazing yeah. and how many shows have you done with her how many solo shows oh god um, well it's, we just realized it's been 15 years and I think wow. it's probably been 5 or 6 shows something like that and then so a handful great. of group shows and yeah she's always and she's one of those artists or dealers that also buys from almost every exhibition she's really that supportive in fact when she started showing amy bennett's work she bought everything that amy made so amy could stay in the studio instead of having to get a job wow that's amazing yeah before amy had any reputation (laughs) yeah it's really unusual wow for a completely untested artist she just believed in the work so much she just knew something was going to happen so how did this uh, pairing come up with Loretta? Is it Bork or Burke? Yeah. Burke. 
How did that happen? Uh, not coincidentally. I mean, I think that Linda saw some kind of connective tissue between the two of us. I had met Loretta and, and liked her and just, you know, thought her work was really interesting. Um, you know, it tends to deal with a certain degree of, like, personal reminiscence and, you know, a very clear sense of place. She comes from New Orleans, and there's definitely a kind of New Orleans flavor to her work. Okay. Um, so I think she saw my attachment to my history and Loretta's attachment to her history as a kind of connection. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I can see that happening. Yeah, it was nice. The opening night, actually, she had <clears throat> two openings, one for you know collectors and VIPs, I guess, and then the next night for the general public. But the first night, um, we both did tours of our exhibitions, and it was really nice to sort of sit in on Loretta's tour and sort of get a better idea of where she was coming from and you know what kind of connections we had as artists. Huh. Yeah. That's, Even that's, that's a little so, unusual. It's so so intriguing, like that you come from different places, but you have like this sort of kind of nostalgic connection. Yeah, but twisted. I mean, you mentioned it in some yeah, of the questions. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, talking about how like um, like you have like you have the nostalgia. You have like this this implied kind of sticky sweetness of nostalgia, but um, it's also kind of this Lynchian dystopian lens that you're seeing it through and it becomes um i don't know it just becomes uh creepy the stroking houses i know i love that term <laughs> people uh, stroking their people houses. stroking their house <laughs> yeah. and that's you've done other people paintings and about like people stroking things and touching things I yeah think. well it's funny you sh- I was really happy to see you say that because that's something that's really important to me in that anytime you mine your history there's always that danger that you're going to slip into sentimentality or nostalgia in some kind of unchecked you know unfiltered way but I've always felt like you know I was looking for you know the uncanny in the banal you know it's not that I was trying to force anything I was always trying to look for those moments where, you know, something that seemed to belie a primary text, you know, is kind of undermining that primary text through some strange deviation. Um, and I've always found that interesting. It depends, it doesn't matter to me if you find it in popular culture or if you're finding it in lead toys. You know, it's just, it's always that moment where something that seems harmless and prosaic suddenly you realize has something menacing as a kind of, you know, undercurrent in it. Yeah, and I guess, yeah. you know, creepy is like a <laughs> populist term to use. You yeah, yeah. said it much better than I but said it. Creepy is accurate. It's <laughs> <laughs> still accurate, for sure. And, and to me, it, I mean, I have a real... It resonates with me because I grew up in suburbia, in the Midwest, in fact. Maybe it appeals to those yeah, Midwesterners, right. too, for that reason. But um, I'm just wondering, like, um, do you feel like... Because it's so specific to a period of time and place and Americana, mm-hmm. like, do you feel that people outside of that, ha- what their what what is their relationship to that? Like, wh- how do you appeal to your audience that right, isn't right. part of that? Doesn't have that relationship? No, that's interesting because you know, in fact, quite a bit of the material that I mine predates my own life in the suburbs. You know, a lot of it comes from the '40s, some of it from the '30s, but most of it in the '50s and '60s when I was barely cognizant 
And so you could argue that it's not actually my culture, mm-hmm. which is fine because I think it's actually a kind of universal culture. You know, things like Ozzy and Harriet are still in reruns. Yeah. You know, I right. Love Lucy is in reruns. Leave it to Beaver is in reruns. The right. Brady Bunch is in reruns. These things are constantly being reiterated. So mm-hmm. in some ways, they're part of an idealized America that I think at one time the pop, the culture in, in general, you know, embraced and approved of and basically didn't question. And then you get to the 70s and popular culture kind of does an immediate 180 and you've got All in the Family, you've got Maud, you've got the Jeffersons and all this other sort of counterculture information that kind of disrupts that original uh, narrative. Right. And so I think there's this kind of grace period of somewhere between the 40s and maybe the mid 60s where it's a completely unexamined world. But because of that, you know, it's to me represents that world that people were afraid to look at, you know, that they mm. didn't want to look too closely mm. because they knew that underneath all of that, that, you know, surface uh, banality, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of unhappiness. It doesn't mean that it was all tension and unhappiness, but right. that there was sure. there was a darker America that hadn't been explored yet or was being, you know, covered. The Cosby show, for example. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, it's interesting about that is that it actually was returned to that sort of idealized world. It's just that it was you know, situated in a black community. But I think they were trying to make a case for the kind of normative normative culture that existed in, you know, Ozzy and Harriet, basically. It's just, you know, a different culture. But do you see those as more, I don't know, effective moments in terms of media, like how three channels, every, you know, however many million people watch MASH or whatever, was so, were so steeped in those moments, whereas now everything's so fragmented in terms of what we're watching, what we're listening to. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, like smells like teen spirit. Everybody listened to that song all the time because it was just free. It was on the radio and, and it really got into my generation. Whereas I don't think stuff operates the same way as that anymore. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought of it, but it's really true. There were so few networks at the time. There was no cable. There was, you know, there was no alternative media. And so you really were, you know, much more easily manipulated. Even if you hated the stuff that, you know, that was being offered, you watched it because there was nothing else to watch. Yeah. Yeah, And I think like we were talking a little bit like you, you watched it like Patty Duke, car 54, all that (laughs) stuff. That was even before your time. Kim watched it. I watched it. It's like that stuff still lasts for some reason. Whereas I don't think whatever show is on TV right now will have those sort of legs, you know? Yeah, and maybe it's just it doesn't have as deep an imprint because of the lack of options. But, yeah. you know, they. I think they also become this weird... I was thinking about, you know, how often you'll be watching a television show or a movie and some 70s song will come up and yeah. it'll be like, wow, why are people still, you know, listening to, you know... <laughs> I don't, I don't know who I was thinking of, like Hall and Oates. I was watching it yeah. and I was thinking, Jesus Man Christ, Hall and Oates is on like television <laughs> all the time. And I know. Radio commercials and it's like, I mean, it's a good song, but it's not that good. There are other <laughs> options, you know? Yeah, it's so true. You watch the Super Bowl and it's still Led Zeppelin commercials yeah, on the car. Right. And it's like, yeah. was that the only stuff that really got into, you know, is everything just disposable culture now and that'll always be the the standard or there's just that there's so much of it now that you know to actually have an impact is almost next to impossible you yeah know? right just, if I, I was looking at 
movies online recently, and Janice and I were just sort of you know looking at the trailers and like, oh my god, we hadn't heard of any of these movies. Like, I know. I hadn't seen a review. I hadn't seen known any. I didn't know that they were in production. Yeah. And these things are being offered basically before they've even hit the movie theaters. Yeah. Because there's it's either that they're so forgettable, and in some cases that's not true, but. It's because there's so many options. Well, know? and that's such an interesting point. I remember my first like iPad, iPod, you know, mm-hmm. and I remember when I like listening to CDs. An album was an important work of art, as it is, you right. know, ten songs. They all made sense. They spoke to each other. They spoke to each other. Yeah. And then getting the iPod, hitting shuffle, <laughs> and then you'd have like a Beatles song right next to the dumbest song you'd ever heard. You know, and right. it's like. Nothing, everything's meaningless now. You yeah. know, there's no sort of like hierarchy of anything. It's just there's a no walk. There's no context. Yeah. yeah, there's no context. It's real. Yeah. yeah. Have you oh, get a little closer. closer. Yeah, just because there's a lot of background noise. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, but no, it's funny to, to sort of go back to the television thing. You know, I found myself um, when I would start scrolling through older television shows, the thing that I was always looking for was the frame that seemed to be at odds with the primary text. And okay. even though you've got these shows that are very, very familiar, um, you would find some moments that seem to question what was happening in the primary narrative. And I really like that idea, that huh. somebody would look away in a, in a way that seemed to be questioning what was happening on set. Um, huh. but, but the funny thing is that even with something like Ozzie and Harriet, and I've said this before, but um, one of the things that made that show interesting was that it was, in some ways, the world's first reality television show. It was a family. It was a husband and wife and their two kids. And even though it was all scripted, so was reality television. It's just this was scripted to a larger degree. Hmm. And the other thing... Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the husband and wife were actually partners in making this show happen, which made it really interesting because if you look at the shows, going back, I wasn't expecting to find this because I hadn't really looked at any in many, many years that there are certain kind of gender role issues that come up because it's a husband and wife producing this television show back in the 50s. Huh. They had to take each other seriously. They had the same commitment to the same product. Huh. So there, there are all sorts of weird little narratives in that show. And, I mean, things where Ozzy was like a super physically affectionate father, and he was physically affectionate as a man with other men. And you, so you'd see him putting his arms around people <laughs> all the time. It's like... Wow, that's actually weirdly progressive in its yeah. own way. You know, like you just don't expect that. You know, if you think about My Three Sons or Leave It to Beaver, the father was always this guy in a cardigan and a pipe reading yeah. the newspaper. He was sort of like not even in the narrative, you know? Right, uh, right. Oh, that's really interesting. You, you really just make me want to go back yeah, and take a look watch at all this <laughs> yeah, exactly. with Seriously. a different lens yeah. on, you know? Just the I, way you like, the way you kind of incisively overexpose these things and like you're, you're you're really looking at it like in a scientific way like it's it's very intellectualized and very scientific like you're blowing it up under a microscope and saying this is what we're actually looking at and it's it's like exposing what's subliminal in yeah. all of that and, and right it's and, and it's disturbing <laughs> well you know it's funny i was raised in a town on long island it's a very nice town you know upper middle class town really good education you know, nice houses, nice streets, everything was clean. But, you know, there were lots of unhappy families. And you didn't really find that out, you know, in any kind of overt way. Little things would sort of slip in or some incident would happen or you realize that somebody was a heavy drinker or whatever. And suddenly you'd realize that all these 
things, the accoutrements of upper middle class life were basically disguising what happens everywhere, you know, a certain degree of just unhappiness and Weltschmerz or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I always found that interesting. I didn't feel, you would ask if I felt like an, an outsider in that culture, and I didn't, but I always felt like an observer in that culture. I okay. felt like that was part of how I just saw myself is just looking, you know, maybe a little bit more carefully at things. That's funny because we were just talking about how that's what an artist is really. It's like, almost a voyeuristic observer, you know? I mean, we're, we're constantly looking at what's happening in our lives from a, almost from a secondary degree, and, and your paintings kind of really emphasize that feeling, like it's not a firsthand experience, you know? You're, you're, you're using those um, figures as avatars, and you're, the right. television is a secondary human experience, too. Yeah, everything's think, mitigated. Yeah. yeah. Mediated. Yeah. 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 I think that's really interesting that you're not... Um, Which is that very you, that you're a figure painter, but you're not. Uh, well, that you've called. I don't your, paint the figure. Yeah. You're not painting the figure. Yeah, you're painting a an, a a, an idea, get a surrogate or an avatar of of the figure. And I'm just curious why you've made that choice. Well, I, I hadn't always made that choice. In fact, um, in the 80s and 90s, I did work from the figure. And in the 80s, it was from my imagination, and in the 90s, it was from. Photoshop collages that I would do, or I would shoot, you know, models and put them into environments and things like that. So it was very figure based. Um, but I found myself feeling that too much of it was about me specifically, and not something larger than myself. And it, it felt too, you know, um, biographical, I guess, autobiographical. And so I wanted to get away from that. And so I started to think about you know, what are other surrogates? You know, you, you know, obviously, the, you know, the art history is full of them, you know, dressers, dummies, you know, statues, toys, whatever. And I just tried to find ones that I could connect to. And when it came to the toys, it was almost sort of ass backwards. Like my father had died recently and I inherited a bunch of these lead toys that he had collected, you know, throughout his life. And I'd, I'd always sort of teased him a little bit about it because I thought there was something slightly infantile about, you know, a grown man collecting these lead toys. But yeah. there were a number of things that tr- attracted me to them. And one was that they seemed to chart the colonial wars that, you know, if you think about that, you know, lead soldiers have been made for over a century now. And they frequently were meant as a way to sort of define who the British and French were fighting against, and mm-hmm. it was usually in col- colonial environments. So I found that, as, as p- in particular, you know, in this era when we're sort of you know reengaging in a kind of colonial colonialist thinking, definitely, um, it was really poignant for me to sort of look at all these soldiers that have been, you know, these wars have been going on for centuries, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> and so I found that really interesting. And it wasn't until I started to really photograph them closely with like a macro lens that I realized that there was all sorts of hidden metaphors in the toys themselves, that there were, you know, it, you know, a one-inch tall toy can look perfectly normal seen through the human eye. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it up close, you know, there are deformations, there are pockmarks, they look like, you know, war wounds. You know, swords can mm-hmm. look, you know, comical in some ways. You know, proportions can become more threatening. And mm-hmm. all of that just seemed to be, you know, some of the, you know, for me, the... the uh, 
I don't know, the imprint of war. It seemed to have the trace of war in it, just in the toys. Just, you know, kids would put all these metal toys, they were lead actually, and then painted on top of, you know, in a little box, and you shake them around a little bit, and a lot of the paint falls off just naturally. So that becomes a metaphor, in in fact. So I love that. I mean, you'd find, there was one point when I started collecting them myself, and I I wanted to do a pyramid of toy heads. (laughs) And, you know, almost like a, you know, uh, a cannonball pyramid. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I actually had done some animations at the same time using the same figures. And so I was looking for toy heads because these things do pop off all the time. And I went, you know, online and sure enough, somebody had a bag of toy heads. And so (laughs) they sent them to me from Germany for like 50 bucks or something like that. And I had all the toy heads that I needed. But it was great, too. It's like you get these things. It's like, God, it's just weird. Like the things that fall off sort of make sense. You know, they just wherever there was a pivot point, wherever there was like a little bit less material. But then that becomes metaphor and and more powerful for me. Yeah, Mm. that certainly makes sense. I mean, it's. It's also just a story about the passage of time, too, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. You're talking about like the, all those dings, but it's also like what happens to th- everything over time is it's it's going to degrade. So, that, but also like that idea of of us still going to war. That's like still a, an idea that we. I mean, we're still just as we haven't figured out how to get away from that. You know, we're still just as violent as we were before. Can't, yeah, you don't can't seem to history. put it in a box and put it away on the shelf. It no, yeah. keeps coming back. No, it's funny. Um, you mentioned time because I think that that's one of the central metaphors for me. It's like, how do you expe- express the passage of time? Right. And, you know, for me, one of the things that happens, particularly in the subtractive pieces that I do, because I roll on a modeling paste ground, and it's got all sorts of you know irregularities built into it, pockmarks and you know fissures and things like that, cracks. That when I start to sand into it, it's almost like the veins in a sculpture. You find these things, and you sort of have to either work with them or just give up. Huh. But I like that, and I like the fact that when I roll on the gesso, as you sand through rolled gesso, it starts to look like static. You know, it's got this weird. It's not continuous. It's not perfect. It, it it's disruptive, and it and it seems to speak to either the passage of time or the decay of imagery or the decay of an idea. Yeah, and just bygone eras, Yeah, I guess. Yeah, too. things being lost. Along those lines, th- th- those were your, your father's toys. Do you see, in, in painting your father's toys, is there a familial connection there, or is it just simply toys you want to paint? Do you yeah, know? you know, it, it's funny you should ask that, Marshall, because... Um, my father never saw any of these because huh. they were painted after his death. Yeah. Oh, wow. and, I, and I always felt like it's something he would have loved to have seen them, especially because some of them are life size. You know, to walk yeah. up to one of his toys that's the same size as he is, that's sort of like the kid's dream come true, right? You, know, yeah. you enter into their world. Um, so I think in some ways you're right. I probably did feel more of a connection to them because they started from this place of his childhood and his love of these objects um Mm. but eventually that connection kind of disappeared especially as i started to collect them myself because i was collecting things that he wouldn't have been interested in i was collecting people that were you know 
train figures that were waiting on, you know, waiting platforms or something okay. like that. Or they right. have farmers, you know, they have all animals and things like that, that when in between wars, they had to find another product to make that would be interesting for kids at the time. And so they started to find these other kind of environments to depict. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, just the economy of wartime and how it affects everything, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Very strange. Yeah, yeah that makes me think of uh, that mural that you did waiting for Toy Doe that was right. so, um, an MTA. What was a... It was a commission out in Massapequa, Long Island, okay. which for me was kind of perfect because... It's very close to where I was raised. You know, it's literally a town that my town competed against. Um, And it's, you know, again, it's sort of suburban setting. So it allowed me to sort of explore that imagery of the toy, you know, figurine in a way, but in a different way. I hadn't really done those images before. And then, you know, those mosaics and stained glass windows turned into paintings, at least, you know, a handful of paintings so far. Oh, so, oh, so the paint, so the, the mosaics uh, influenced paintings that you did after yeah. that, like yeah. that, like that painting that you did for your recent show. Uh, I'm not going to find the title. Arrival. Yes. Yeah. That was taken from, I mean, I used one of the stained glass windows as a point of de- departure, but um, I also felt like, you know, I wanted to change things about it. And I felt like, you know, there are things that stained glass can do that paint can't, and there are things that paint can do that stained glass can't. And so exploring that was actually kind of a fun moment for me because, you know, what I like to believe, and this has happened with my animations too, is that you know, anything that you do creatively can influence any of your other interests. So, you know, some of the animations turned into paintings. Some of the paintings that I've done have turned into animations. It really just depends on, you know, what you're most excited by. I mean, there's a part of me now, because I've been doing these figurine paintings, I'd love to do like a life-size sculpture based on one of these, you know, lead toy soldiers. That would be way cool. You know, imagine if it was like, a life-size, you know, these things look really distorted. They look really weird in person when you blow them up. But if it was literally like 10 feet tall, made, made wow. out of lead, you know, how amazing that would look. You know? Yeah. So you're taking the macro and, like, blowing up that macro. Wildly, yeah. I'm visualizing, like, the, the, the lineup of the terracotta figures exactly. and stuff yeah. like Go that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. To- totally. That's a great illusion because... It's very so similar to the toys. Yeah. Well, it's funny because Janice and I took a trip to to Gian about two years ago. And and it was in the winter, so there was nobody there. It was like two other people in these giant tombs with thousands and thousands of soldiers. And I was looking at them, and I was like, God, it feels like they're animated because there's so many of them, and they're all unique. Right. All the faces are different, right? Even the, the uniforms. I mean, it's amazing the amount of work that went into this thing. But immediately made me want to do an animation of it, which I haven't gotten to yet. But it's it, it is very much in the same spirit, like this idea that they they don't look real. They look like you know surrogates in a strange way. Yeah. But they're they're almost more terrifying because that they have this almost robotic like feeling to them. I mean, they're beautiful, they're exquisitely beautiful, but they do feel like menacing because they're just so, you know, inhuman. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that you use that word surrogate because it does feel like, and Kim was asking a little earlier about like observing even to the point of voyeuristic, which is a very suburban concept of like peeking through windows, looking outside. 
Do you do you um, is is the the presence of a surrogate like the toy or the vacuums or something always something you're always thinking about in your work? Um, well, it's funny the vacuums and most of those black and white pieces that I did for Linda's show. <clears throat> I was looking for advertisements that it was a slightly different tack because what I was looking for, and I think this is a projection on my part, but there are all these photo essays that you would find in women's magazines, especially in the 40s and 50s, that were probably art directed by men. There were just very few women that were working in the workforce at that time. Mad men. Yeah, exactly. So you look (laughs) at these guys that are basically trying to create an atmosphere in, you know, women's magazines but they're doing it in a kind of film noir way yeah so it's like in some ways it's completely absurd like why would you want how how does film noir sell a vacuum cleaner it, <laughs> it doesn't right you know it's just too weird right Maltese vacuum. but it's probably some guy that wanted to make movies and he's stuck to you know, doing Absolutely. art direction for right. a women's magazine so he decides to filter film noir you know into this this whole process and so they're actually really beautiful and creepy i mean there's uh-huh. sort of like this sense of menace because I mean, the vacuums at the time were like as big as a bazooka. So there's women like walking up these stairs with these things. Um, but again, the harsh lighting, all this sort of tenebristic quality yeah. to the work that's really, really interesting to me. It was, I mean, because I remember I, when we went to your studio, and which thank you for having us, by the way. That was really yeah, that pleasure. was really cool. Yeah, was but I remember those black and whites, and and it did it really featured the vacuum like it was the main character and a lot of it was just like legs of women and, and yeah. that sort of thing which yeah. was really kind of evocative and disembodied and strange well you know part of it is the, the cropping you know yeah, obviously yeah. when you're cropping out people's expressions if their expressions are cheerful they're not going to look as menacing but as right. soon as you take a lot a little bit of that information away suddenly it makes it much easier for the audience to project and to sort of make the the image their own somehow so but that, th- that's another one of those really sophisticated Peter Drakean twist, you know, that I that I really appreciate about your work. The, the cropping, you mean? yeah, or yeah. just knowing what an expression does to something like that and yeah. hiding it and that sort. Because of, it's like you you really are a master at hide, heightening a mood. Well, like you said, you know, sort of finding the the spectacular and the mundane kind of thing. Like yeah. uh, everything's pregnant with feelings that is not really just about a vacuum you know yeah there's yeah. all this meta narrative that's that's going on yeah no i like that and i've tried a bunch of different ways of doing that i mean there there was a series of paintings that i did where i would omit one piece of information from what was a you know prosaic environment and change the narrative that way, just usually by removing a figure or a gesture. And it's amazing, suddenly a gesture becomes disembodied if there isn't another person reacting to it. And, I mean, it's a really cool trick. I mean, of course, Photoshop is built for this, right? It's really easy to remove information. And so it was just a series of omissions, and and I found that really fascinating. One of them that actually Mark Menon owns up in Connecticut was a family, you know, obviously in the Southwest, and the father was taking a you know Super 8 movie of a Native American dancing up on a rock. So they're all sort of looking up at this rock, and I just took the Native American out, and suddenly they're looking at nothing. But they're fascinated by it, right? <laughs> oh, they're yeah. all just like, 
you know, completely drilled in on looking at this empty space. And it's like the uh, uh, obelisk in 2001 or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just going to... <laughs> Once it's gone, right? Right, but also doesn't that, like, bring in the ephemeral, like, like they're looking into, like, this space. I mean, it could be a religious painting in, in that Oh, way, yeah, you know? absolutely. And suddenly, like, they're worshipping empty space and light, so basically... Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the funny thing about that is somebody actually mentioned this to me in Chicago, and I'd never really put it into words. But as soon as she said it, I was like, oh, my God, how could I have missed that about my own work? And she said, you know, your, your paintings frequently have somebody turning away from the primary narrative. Like they're, mm-hmm. they've turned their back on something. They're either ignoring something that is too painful to address or they're just oblivious. Mm. And I realized that mm. I do that over and over and over again. Just that one figure that's somehow oblivious to the primary narrative in the in the painting. And that's that always sends this really weird signal to people that you can be unaware of something that is catastrophic if you just turn your back. Right. Wow. Like all kinds of things are happening. If, as long, if you don't put the lens on it, right. exactly. then you totally miss... What's happening? Yeah. I mean, like walking past... Well, like I was saying in, in uh, my questions to you, like there's something very New Yorker in your work that it's just like, uh, you know, we're on the metro, you're on the metro, and some really bizarre thing can be happening, and somebody will still be playing their Candy Crush or reading their New York times yeah. or whatever and like it's just a normal day so <laughs> your paintings have that same kind of feeling like this terrible thing is happening this house is burning down right and, but the band is going to keep marching on and the dogs are going to run by because they're i don't know chasing a squirrel or something yeah. <laughs> who knows no i think that's absolutely true and you know that is i don't think that's a unique new york experience but it's one that every New Yorker has to do because if you were to take in all the visual stimulation that's happening in the city constantly, you'd have a stroke. You wouldn't yeah. even be able to get through a day. Yeah. So, And I remember when Janice first moved to New York from Florida, she was living on the beach in a beautiful little sort of you know garage apartment. What did you do to her? <laughs> and she moved up and she didn't have blinders yet, you know, because I was yes. raised in New York, so I've, I've got like deep blinders. But she, it took her like two months to, to, to learn how to ignore certain things that were happening on the street, ignore, ignore certain you know, comments that men would make to her, you know, whatever was necessary to get through the day. And in fact, the painting that's in Linda's show called um, Overlook is pretty much about that. It's two couples that are sort of walking by a house that's on fire, and they've got their kids and strollers and things like that. And you know, it could be read as a critique of people who are, you know, well-heeled or whatever but it's really not it's it is a critique to a certain degree of people that have their blinders on too deeply but it's also a kind of you know and empathizing with people who are just struggling to survive like how do you get through the day you know how do you survive a city like new york unless you're willing to do something like that but it kind of it kind of reminds me of what like ernest becker would say about um the, the denials we do just to live. So it isn't even, I mean, New York's one thing that's a hyper chamber, but I think it speaks to our internal life as well. All the little omissions, like you said, turning your back to things yeah, or the little, the little sort of lies we tell ourselves just to keep us motivated, you know, which is, it's just a natural facet of how we have to stay productive. I think Ernest Becker's quote was, 
if we really confronted like it, it, he was talking about it in ways of like the schizophrenic who's on on the street just sort of um talking to God out in the middle of the street type thing. And he was saying that's a really reasonable reaction to the circumstances we're in, you know? Yeah, we right. would, if we all addressed reality <laughs> head on, we would be that, yeah, you know? Right. And so it's he his theory is it's just our blinders we put on and the little lies that keeps us kind of from doing that. Yeah. I think that's probably a fairly, I mean, aside from the organic origins of schizophrenia and psychotic behavior, I think that's probably true. Most people just would not be able to survive. And I was thinking about this relative to, you know, all the, you know, climate change disasters that have been happening recently. And, you know, Janice was talking about, you know, like, I don't know how soon after, you know, the floods happened in Houston that they started to happen in Puerto Rico, but suddenly people weren't talking about Houston anymore. Yes. You know, it's sort right. of like it was off the radar because we're on to the next story. Right. Absolutely. Whatever it is. And, you know, that disaster kept happening. I mean, it yeah. was disastrous for a long, long time. You, can't, you yeah. can't cure a problem like that that quickly. Just think about the number of lives that were affected by something like that. But, you you know, it's, some, it's almost like the news cycle. You know, any, there's a point where I know, you know, Whatever mass murder is going to happen in the near future, it will last. Our interest will last about a week. Yeah, uh, if that. If that, if that. I, yeah. I had a pretty heartbreaking moment. I mean, this is just my experience, but <clears throat> that you know, the recent attack in, in Tribeca, it, 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 we're so inundated that that honestly hardly registered with me. You yeah, know, right? And I remember I took a pause because I'm like. I'm not even really affected by this at this point. Wow. It just feels yeah. like it's just one after the next. And Didn't like that happen through. while we were here? Yeah, it happened while we were recording a podcast. And it was right. sort of like, uh, yeah. eight dead and try back. And then it's like, you know, well, welcome yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Four blocks from the Academy. Welcome to uh, our podcast. <laughs> Peter, there's actually a layer of audio or a layer of acoustics in your paintings, you know, with the, the band... You know, fire, dogs barking. Yeah. Oh. And I think it's a nice way to kind of bring it all in because obviously, you know, like, I don't know if people experience that noise when they look at your paintings or are you doing, especially, and vacuum cleaners. Right. That's another, you know, Mm -hmm. you're, you're putting in all these elements in there that just would make a lot of noise. Yeah. And would require you to pay attention to it. And in the paintings, people are ignoring it. And, you know, we're talking about blinders. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Are you doing that consciously? Uh, uh, I don't know how consciously I'm doing it. Um, but it's interesting because when I was doing the animations, one of the things that was the most fun for me to do was all the Foley effects. So, and, and there's a lot. I mean, and, and in every one of the animations, there was a key piece of music that I would link to the animation. Right. And, you know, there were dog barks. There were, you know, plates being dropped. There were, I mean, all sorts of things that had to be, you know, edited into the animation. And, you know, it's not like I have a sound suite. I just go out onto the patio and drop plates on the floor. <laughs> I, I, you know, I drop Genesis. forks Don't and knives. It's usually pots and pans. You can get almost any, any sound effect that you want, but there's some yeah. that I really wanted. There's one, you know, 
animation that I did that was called Wall Street Clowns. It was these two clowns that were bashing each other oh, over yeah. their heads. Oh, yeah. so Punch and Judy. It was so Punch and Judy, but, you know, I wanted to make my own special effects, so I was taking rulers and making them go... Wah, 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 oh, wah, so wah. great! <laughs> and, but the, a lot of... Or squeezing balloons when I wanted to stretch somebody's neck. And oh. you find all these things. These are just... And they're old sort of, you know... It's old radio tricks, totally right? Totally old radio tricks. And what's oh, funny about that, that is my father was a director and producer for radio drama when he was a young man and oh, he would no talk kidding. about having to do all these Foley effects of like if you wanted the sound of bacon you would take cellophane and just crunch it up in your hands and it sounds just like bacon frying oh, no wow. so you tell us all these tricks and I think some of them were kind of rattling around in my head and I was like yeah, I want to do my own Foley effects for sure. That's so my much My favorite fun. Foley effect was uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I watched a documentary about it. And you know how when the dwarves were walking across the floor and it was squeaking? Yeah. They had the this older guy who did the actual effects... And he had his wallet that he used, and he just squeaked his wallet. Oh, really? squeaking. It was amazing. Well, I remember when I was trying to get this stretching noise, because I I wanted to make it seem like, you know, their necks were being distended. I tried. There are all sorts of, like, gizmos you can make, and you have to put rosin in them, and it's, like, usually like a wooden peg in a, you know, a slightly smaller hole. I couldn't get the sound at all. And then finally, I just remembered at one point playing with balloons and you could get this really weird squeaky effect. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. So sometimes the easiest things are the best. Next time you do that, I'll, I'll be your assistant. <laughs> it was so, so funny because, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those art. This is, I mean, I'd love to have assistants, but um, I, I'm one of those artists like never has assistants. Like I just, I've, I've never hired anybody. I just am not good at that. And, and, but something like this is, you know, when you're doing animation, it's just like, it would be so much easier if I just knew people who knew how to do this stuff, but I insist on doing it all myself. And so, you know, you're kind of learning these things, you know, on YouTube usually. Wow. That takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. And, you know, the funny thing of course, is that you're taking these lessons on, you know, after effects or whatever and it's always done by like a 14 year old guy (laughs) almost without exception it's a 12 to 14 year old guy who's like an expert at after effects you know (laughs) and here I am like 60 year old trying to learn from this kid keeping your youth alive that's that's awesome (laughs) that leads to like the question that everybody wants to know is are you a clone? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's funny. I saw that question. How do you possibly have time to make video, make a body of work for your current show? Uh, I don't know. Travel back and forth, and you're the dean, uh, the academic dean at the New York Academy of Art. I mean, and and you and you support and visit all the artists' shows. I, yeah, we I see at your shows. See you yeah, all tried all the time, yeah. and. I and you do things well, Peter. Which yes, is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easy to do a lot of things poorly. That's <laughs> 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 right. Certain things have to slide. <laughs> but none of that is slapdash, and and I, I'm just I'm in awe. We're in awe. Well, Aww. it's funny because I actually feel lazy. Like I feel like <laughs> I don't get enough done. Oh, like I, there are times when I just feel like. Because you do have to have days where you just collapse. Like the past couple of days, you know, when we came home from Chicago, we were just wiped out. I was so tired. Um, but, you know, some of it is having, you know, the way Janice and I describe our life in the arts is we call it the farm. Uh. 
because farm. if you're on a farm, the husband and wife are both working towards the same goal. They have an equal amount of respect, you know, from their colleagues who are other farmers. Everybody is trying to advance the same cause. So we always refer to, you know, it's like the farm, like, well, the crops are coming in, honey. (laughs) Send the paintings off to Chicago, right? (laughs) Or, uh, you know, the locusts are coming if it it looks like you're not getting much done. The humidity's affected the acrylic today. Yeah, right. (laughs) So uh, having Janice there, she handles, like, all my social media stuff, and she, you know, she is always keeping me... Like, she looks at my calendar at school. She always is reminding me of things that are coming up from previous years, like, you know, what's coming down the pipe, basically. But also, you know, the Academy now has so many good people working for it, people that are just, you know, extraordinary at their job. You know, mm-hmm. Katie Hemmer is just incredible, the amount of work that she can get done. Shout uh, out Michael to Katie Morgan. Hemmer. Yeah, shout out to Katie Hemmer. You know, Michael Morgan is fantastic. As he's both my assistant and the director of student services. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Heidi Elbers. You know, I've never met anybody who's more organized than she is as far as like exhibitions are concerned. It's amazing how much stuff, how many plates these people keep going. You know, yeah, up in the air at amazing. all times. Like, like and Herod, Kelly, David, everybody just works so hard. Holly is just. A fiend. I mean, she's just unbelievable. If you she's see her, terrific, yeah. the amount of stuff she can get done in a day is just superhuman. So when we were working on getting middle states accreditation and uh, NASA accreditation, Katie, Holly, Mikey, myself, Denise at the time earlier, you know, just these are people that I knew I could rely on. Absolutely. They're just you it's know, your team. They're a real team. Yeah. Really, really good people. That's awesome. Yeah. You've done a lot of curation too, like also with Heidi and uh, other people. I mean, you have what well, was Piss and Vinegar, Two Generations of Provocateurs. There was Beautiful that was a great Beast. Show. Thanks. Yeah, I really like that. There was that. the Big Picture. There was Now and Then drawings from the 19th century to the present. I don't know if I'm missing anything here, but. That's another hat that you wear. Yeah, and that's one that I particularly like. It's really, I mean, it's one of the things that was a little bit underdeveloped at the Academy before, you know, I got my position there. Um, You know, they were doing shows, but they weren't, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what kind of artists they wanted to bring in, how that would sort of rebrand the school, Mm. and how it could create, you know, a new community for us. Like, every time you show somebody, they feel more connected to the school. Every time you borrow a great piece of art from a private collection they feel more connected to the school so right. it becomes a kind weirdly enough a kind of recruitment tool it becomes you know a development tool it becomes a branding tool it's really actually important and it's also fun you know and it's great for the students too oh my because God, yeah. I love those talks that you do you know those informal talks where you bring the students through and you talk about the work it's you're so insightful about the work every time, and I, I've learned so much from you just having going through those shows and having you talk about the, the works. Like well, Mark, really Mark Tansy, that. I remember. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, too, for me. Work. One of the nice things is that I also get to talk to the artists and say, what is this piece really about? You know, And really delving into somebody like Mark Tansy's work or Neil Rauch's work, there's just so much content there. Right. <laughs> you know, it's really fascinating to hear them talk about their work and to realize that, you know, there's so much more nuance to it than you ever could have imagined. So that's been a pleasure. But also the kinds of visual conversations that happen in shows like these. My One of my favorites was uh, Beautiful Beast because 
you know, I remember going around and photographing that show and just feeling like there is no bad angle. Like, you just make these weird connections if you're looking at Barry Ball but seeing Leslie Dill in the background or if you're looking at Gene Silverthorne's little figures and then there's Evan Penny right behind it. You know, there was, like, all these great little conversations going on. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that, too, yeah. yeah, The whole dialogue. So, I mean, that's so invigorating. And, you know, when you're putting a show like that together, it's not just the artists that you're selecting, but in my mind's eye, like one of the first decisions that I made was I knew exactly where Leslie Dill's piece was going to go. It had to be in that wall. And and then I realized, okay, actually filling the walls is actually going to be pretty important because the rest of the sculpture is going to be floor-based. So having Evan Penny on a wall, having Richard DuPont on a wall, and having Leslie Dill on a wall sort of locked in the space it made me realize okay now i've made those big decisions now it's just a matter of placement with the other artists and that was phenomenal it's just like it was great just to see how you know just the materiality of leslie and rona pondick's work um spoke to each other was really interesting too that makes so much sense to me though also related to both your your video and your painting because you are thinking in this very theatrical like cinematic way of where you're placing something so it kind of goes hand in hand with your curatorial practice you know you're very thoughtful about where you place everything I I can't imagine that if something was moved like a quarter inch away you would probably like move it to the place where it needed to be because you have this spatial idea of of spatial reference that's that's quite um, quite advanced you know, it's funny about that. Um, this also came up in a couple of conversations in Chicago, but I do think in terms of theater, mm-hmm. like I think of a set, I think of props, I think of characters, you know, that when I'm peopling my paintings, I'm thinking of them in theatrical terms. I always have. I've always thought in those terms. I've always felt like in my mind's eye that I could kind of circle around the set and just see from different perspectives what would be the most compelling way to present the narrative. And and I so I think I've always just thought cinematically. And mm-hmm. so when I started doing the After Effects things, it was it felt so natural and it was so for me it was exhilarating the first time I took one of these toys. I don't know if you know that program, but there's something called the puppet pin tool. Mm-hmm. And you can basically take a series of you can take any photograph and you place these pins in certain joints in that photograph and you can basically animate the toy what? okay so the first time i did it you know and i was just practicing on a horse and i was putting these pins in and i as soon as i stretched out the legs for like a full got gallop all of a sudden its lungs expanded because mm. of the distortion oh, wow. and i was like oh my god that just looks real it was just wow. phenomenal so it brought this kind of realism to the work that you know i try to get in the paintings but you can't really get any other way but animation and video mm. so it was really a thrilling thing to to do but i'm actually glad that you see that even the curating as a as a form of theater because particularly yeah. in beautiful beast there was a lot of just theater going on there so in terms of that cinema or or theater what who are the the directors you look at like who are your inspirations in that way well obviously david lynch yeah yeah is yeah. a big one um i've always been impressed by his work and all just you know the milieu that he developed i always in some ways feel like he almost created 
a way of looking at suburban culture that really didn't exist before. Yeah. So it's, you know, you, you know, he's just had a huge effect on me, my life. Um, I think somebody like Tarkovsky, um, yeah. is somebody who's affected my work, but particularly when I was doing more monochromatic work that, uh, that was really important. David Lean is one of those early directors that I look at and just think, Jesus, this guy is just unbelievable. Just the simplest scenes, like in Oliver Twist, there's a scene where Bill is basically kicking a dog in a corner. And it's just the creepiest, weirdest little scene. But it's something that he inserts in a way that is, you know, almost doesn't make sense. But it's a metaphor for the Bill character, for how hostile and how angry he is. Yeah. So and how I, he would prey on the innocent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. It just it makes you feel a kind of hatred for this guy. And at the same time, the dog is still just as vicious as the Bill character is. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Funny. Huh. But, yeah, no, there, I mean, they're just, I, offhand, I'm, I'm sort of drawing a little bit of a blank. I mean, they're the big names, the, the Hitchcocks of the world. But, um, you know, definitely David Lean, um, Tarkovsky, uh yeah, and Lynch are big. Yeah, I can see, I can see all those in your in your work, and even kind of the way it feels like David Lynch. I mean, it, of course, he was a painter first, and it feels like he would design narratives around images in his head first, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I always really respond to that. I think a lot of painters respond to David Lynch because of that, you know, like yeah. these gorgeous scenes that me more than the dialogue you know yeah and also the way he uses artifice you know there are weird things that he'll do um in blue velvet there was some scene between kyle mclaughlin and um oh, who's the female lead laura dern laura dern where they're walking down a street and there's and the pacing of their walk is different than the actual movement of the scenery behind them and it just gives you this like yes. really yeah. weird feeling of like you know you're com- you know like you've lost your equilibrium or something. Yeah. But it, and it's it's so minor, but it's so effective, and it, because it's destabilizing, you know. And, and it's, you, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, but that's the whole point of the movie in some ways that everything is sort of destabilized. Yeah, I feel like you're that one in the in the Tell Them Story show, your video with like the city. Sh- the city street and the horses galloping. Right. The clouds kind of moving behind. It sort of had a bit of that feel to it. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. You know, it's funny about that. Um, a friend of mine who was, he was also learning Maya at the time that I was learning uh, after effects. He's a sculptor. And he was like, you know, I'm never going to be great at Maya. I'm not, I'll never be able to put in the hours to make, you know, a, a great piece of like 3d rendering. And he said, you're never going to be a great animator because it just, it's not possible. You're, you're competing against people who've been doing this since they were 12. And yeah. I was like, yeah, you're right. But there's actually room for a certain kind of like outsider after effects animator. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Like, in other words, like the things that are bad in my animations, you know, where the seams show and where there's a kind of klutziness to it are okay, you know, because I'm not trying to make, you know, uh, you know, a Hollywood style animation. Absolutely. I'm trying to make something that's different, you know? Yeah. And so there is a clumsiness to even that piece. I, you know, I'm very proud of that piece. It took a crap load of work to make that thing, but at the same time, it's not perfect. You know? Yeah. Harold, Harold Speed would call that dither. 
And, mm-hmm. uh, and I love that phrase. He was saying art sort of is only effective with a certain amount of dither. And he right. likened it to building an engine where if the pistons fit perfectly, when you once it, the engine heats up and the metal expands, it'll lock up. So it has to have a little play and a little imperfection huh. right. to, to expand. Yeah. And he was talking about how, you know, he was talking more of representational drawings, but just embrace a little bit of that dither in there and it, you know, the the audience will respond more to it you know it's interesting if you compare that let's say to like a traditional florence academy drawing they're perfect right mm-hmm. yeah and they're all perfect in the same way mm-hmm. there's no dither in it at all yeah, right exactly. and that and they're lifeless for that yeah. reason i mean not, no complaints about the florence academy there's absolutely good reason for ateliers like that to exist but the things that come out of it don't have that human component to them. Uh-huh. Right. And it's because something's missing, and which is different, I think, than de-skilling. And that was another issue that you brought up. Yeah, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Because I don't... I, I have problems with the idea of somebody, you know, letting go of their visual intelligence, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that you've developed over your entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen people do that and do it more or less credibly, more or less believably, but that's actually not something I'm particularly interested in. I'm interested in more of what you're talking about, where there's a human component. There's like, you know, the thing that isn't perfect that mm-hmm. makes it a better piece somehow. Whatever yeah, that, that is, is much more interesting. Definitely. I guess I was just looking at de-skilling as something that we're reacting to now. Like people are, well, according to people like Robert Zeller, you know, people are just becoming bored with that, you know, because there isn't. Like you, for the reasons that you're interested in what Marshall was saying, like there isn't a lot of content to that. You can't really put a lot of <laughs> psychological intrigue or anything into that. It's just okay. You took that thing that you could have done masterfully and really screwed it up. Well, you know the problem is it comes out of the outsider art tradition, which is now you know a century old tradition, right? More than and. Th- Looking at outsider art, looking at art, you know, brute is a completely was a completely legitimate aspect of modernist thinking. Mm-hmm. That you know the salons, the you know, ateliers had gotten to the point where you know there was no ability to surprise, there was no ability to astonish. Everybody was doing the same kind of work, so they were looking for some kind of raw experience, and they were mm-hmm. usually looking in other cultures, whether mm-hmm. it was. African cultures or the art of the insane or whatever, uh, institutionalized artists. But that was authentic. That was real. That mm. wasn't coming. That wasn't somebody faking an outsider look. This is just, this was right. an absolute pure reflection of the culture. Right. So the problem is when Western artists who had been trained, you know, with this incredibly articulate language start to abandon that language and kind of ape the outsider. It's like appropriation in a way. Well, it's worse, actually. It's kind yeah. of cultural tourism to me. Yeah, There's yeah. a kind of fraud in that that I've always felt like you're looking for the authentic by doing something fraudulent makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know? That's so smart. Yeah, It's really weird. I mean, it, 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 you know, I can see why people would want to do it because they would try to get back to some kind of authentic experience, mm-hmm. but that's just insincere. But there, mean, it's not their experience. It's not, it's not their experience. It's somebody. Right. It's another culture's experience, where it's it's somebody who's gone through an incredibly painful experience, in history. Not it's right. not your own. 
it would yeah. make more sense for the technician to just push that technical abilities to its uppermost. I think so, yeah. Instead of abandoning it right Right. or you know it's like there's no language is ever dead right it's like you don't blame german for my for mein kampf the Mm. problem was mein kampf it was how the language was used Mm. and i think you know at the end of the 19th century it was the way the language was being used was boring it would hit a roadblock people didn't know how to push it they didn't know where to go with it but now i think that people are sort of coming back to this like incredibly articulate language they're realizing that there's so much unexplored material it's like Tun said it's like how do you push it how do you make this thing that's existed for so long do something new you don't just abandon it right you try to find a way to make it new again right and yeah. I, I feel like that's very much in line with what is happening in the academy i mean correct me if i'm wrong but seems like, well, I know you're trying to find some sort of a hybrid with the Academy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you're coming from a very conceptual end in, in your work, and I, I think that that's interesting. Um, well, I have quite... As you, far as, like, you know, bringing the academics in, but also having a very strong thread of, of concept and underneath that work so that it actually means something and, and is not just... Uh, not just something superficially beautiful to look at. Right. Um, yeah, I think that that is, you know, when we finally came up with our vision statement, you know, the sort of traditional skills, contemporary discourse, we realized that both those things have to exist and they have to exist in equal measure. And I think when, you know, the, the Academy first started to change, like back around 2000, you know, suddenly Catherine Howe and uh, Mark Menon, you know, were brought into the school, you know, different kind of faculty started being introduced, different kinds of lecturers were coming in. It was, you know, an uncomfortable fit. There were a lot of, you know, the old guard that felt very threatened by it. But the the important thing was, you know, ultimately what we realized is you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You've got to realize what is your strength, what makes your mission unique, what are the things that you're doing that nobody else is doing. Because that's really important to hold on to that stuff, to have some sense of institutional memory mm-hmm. um, that you preserve. Um, but you don't want to just become a preservation society. So you have to bring in all of this other information. And, you know, we want our students, obviously, to be full participants, to be engaged with contemporary culture, to be showing, to be curating, to be writing, to be doing podcasts, whatever <laughs> else. <laughs> we want it all, right? We want to yeah. be, you know, because you want to have people that are participants, that are mm. real cultural producers. Right, right. What, were you, what was your question, Marshall? Oh, I was wondering, because you said, do you see yourself as a conceptual artist or a more traditional how do you see yourself in that um you know it's funny when i was in school um i was i went to pratt at a time where most of the painting classes were focused on sort of reductive abstraction um and there was very little being taught that was content driven in fact you Hmm. rarely even talked about content you didn't Hmm. talk about narrative you didn't talk about metaphor or symbology and if you wanted to talk about things like that, you had to go into illustration programs. And right. so okay. I was always taking, even though I was in the fine arts department, I was always taking illustration classes so I could keep that, those chops going. Um, but I, I think I always saw myself just naturally 
this sounds weird, but as a renderer, and I don't mean that in like some stupid render monkey kind of way where I'm just happy rendering, right? But I've always really loved the magic of illusionistic painting. Yeah, it's just there's something about doing that that's so powerful that when you're doing it, when I was working on the painting arrival, I remember you know I set up you know blocks of local color started to do the light masses and then all of a sudden I started doing the shadow masses in the transparent chromatics and the thing just became volumetric almost yeah. immediately and yes. it's, and it's such a cool feeling it's just an unbelievable feeling uh-huh but i i still want to have that experience married to some deeper kind of content you know something that talks about our culture today something that talks about politics uh something that talks about popular culture you know I, so i i've always seen myself as a kind of conceptual realist you know mm-hmm. and i i think you know i'm from yeah, a generation term. of artists like mark tansy and like eric fischel and like you know neo rauch that you know that grew up wanting both things somehow and mm-hmm. the unfortunate thing is that you know most of us had to teach ourselves how to paint because it just simply wasn't being taught technically in schools at that time right that's yeah. so interesting because would you be the artist that you are today if you didn't teach yourself? I mean, I don't know. You know, it's it's really hard <laughs> to say. One of the things that you know, Mark and I have talked about this. Bob Yarwood, John Bowman, you know, KK Kozik, um, Ann Showstrom. We're all kind of talking about well, what would have been like if we had been taught all these things? You know, would it have been as meaningful? Would we have found the solutions that we found? Because each one of us works in some weird hybrid way right and so maybe we wouldn't have but um you know when i see when i see people at the academy getting all this information i'm like god i wish i had known that when i was younger (laughs) it would have been so much easier you know i feel like i had there were so many times when like when i first started working at the academy people started talking about temperature i was like what (laughs) the temperature of paint what the hell yeah, that's right. No, open the window. <laughs> um, it was so crazy. I had to learn all this language about morphology and, you know, taxonomy. And it was like, that's, you know, that would have been fascinating to know when I was younger, just to have that information under my belt. Because I always feel like you can always throw out information that isn't right for you. You don't right. have to use it all. Just use what makes yeah. sense for you. Yeah. But if you're not exposed to it ever, it really is tough. It's hard right. to acquire these things. But in some ways, maybe it's more hard-won knowledge. I remember Michael was saying about um, some of the problems with, like you mentioned, Florence Academy, like really ateliers where it's step-by-step. Right. He was like saying that that information, when you leave those schools, you you can feel a little lost and it can like, you can lose touch with it pretty quick. Whereas really? he was talking about the Art Students League as you aren't instructed that heavily, you know, five days a week you're there, two days a week you'll see an instructor and the rest you're sort of fighting it out on your own. Yeah. And he was like the, you know, the knowledge you're getting at a place like that pretty well seeps in, you know? Yeah. That was interesting. Well, the thing I like the most at the school is when I see a student learning from another student. Yeah. You know, where somebody yeah, yeah. tries a ground or, a, you know, an oil gel or like some new brush or, you know, whatever. They right. treat a surface differently and suddenly, you know, two or three other people try doing their variation of the same thing. But they're all a little bit different, you know, uh-huh. because they're d- bending it a little bit to their own needs. And, you know, that's when you realize that a really healthy school 
of course the students are going to learn more from their peers than they are from the faculty. It's just they're having so much more time around their peers than right. they are around any one faculty mm-hmm. member. Right. Hmm. Milo was that for me. Yeah, right. Oh, like, yeah, sure. I think sure. Dina started using it. I'm like, oh, man, that looks so nice. Yeah, right. <laughs> instant <laughs> like, gratification. Yeah. But then, of course, there was this huge trial and error period where we, we tried to mount it and we messed up all our paintings. <laughs> it was, yeah. But it looks great in your paintings when you mount it on Plexi. Remember that one oh. you showed that had sort of a little bit of backlight to it, the paint yep. would glow. Yeah, that was amazing. I think you have you have to have those moments where you completely fail. You oh, know? absolutely! It's the only way to that's learn. That's part of discovery, <laughs> right? It, yeah. You have to be willing to leap into the abyss and take risks. Say, okay, well, this this just might not work. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Marshall. Um, oh, oh, you yeah, want to take, take a, a break? break. Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Well, I, I feel like now that we're back from a break, I, I'm, I've always been a huge fan of your work, but I was particularly struck by the paintings where the people are touching the houses and struck in, a, in an intense way that it was just such a smart, beautiful idea that encapsulated so much of like, I don't know, it kind of reminded me of like, white noise or all these sort of uh, ideas and where did that come from like do, you know well it's funny because <clears throat> I frequently you know as I'm going you know doing picture research I'll find certain characters and I'll isolate them out of their environment you know it, there'll just be a gesture that I think is really interesting so actually I collected a lot of those things as gestures at one point and because ah. it looked like they were like giving a benediction sometimes. You yeah. Know? Like, so yeah. once it was removed from its context, it actually had this other power that I thought was really interesting. So when I went back to the, the originals, I found myself thinking, you know what? I've also done this a little bit of a disservice because it is such a strange picture. Once I started collecting them, and there's just hundreds of them out there, there were so many advertisements where it was either because of the paint that they were selling or the siding that they were selling that, you know, there was just this sense, you know, in America at the time, I think for most people, that the house was the most important possession in your life. It was the most Mm -hmm. important... um, investment in your life it was the thing that protected your family it was the best you know emblem of your success you know so the house becomes this incredibly powerful thing and i think i may even have mentioned it when you guys were over at my studio before but you know frequently in advertising at that time you know it was like men were outside of the house they were dealing with the lawn and the exterior of the house and women were dealing with the interior of the house like that dynamic in advertising was like pretty much locked you know, and set for good. Yeah. <clears throat> but once I started looking at these, they just felt so strange because they felt like, 
like they're caressing the house. Like the house was a living thing. Yeah. That, yeah. And that's what I Absolutely. liked about it. Like this thing, like it was breathing in their and world. almost sexual in a oh, way. Oh, completely. Yeah. It was tender. It was sexual. So it was weird. all and, those things. And then you saying, I, I was just struck again, like you saying women were in, you know, taking care of the inside, men were in the lawn. I mean, that goes back to, to cavemen. Like, I'm sure. You know, it's, yeah. it's so like enforced and like. And once you get the key, you go inside the house. <laughs> Other metaphors. <laughs> but you're right. No, it's, it actually goes back to a hunter-gatherer versus like who is taking care of the child and the, and the fire, basically. Yeah. You know? Yeah, advertisement is so, it's such an interesting thing to examine and think about and its power and its weight. And it shaped us, you know, undeniably, I think about um, that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and just what a culture steeped in imagery and tactful imagery. You're, you're, you're being guided and ushered through a thing where you start caring about things you don't really care about innately and stuff. Yeah. And I just, I feel that in your work so heavy. It's really, I don't know. It's, it seems like you're in some ways informing me about the, just what it means to be soaked in imagery. You're not choosing, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and that is the truth of, you know, mid century America, you know, that this is That's a time right. when, advertising post-war took on a huge role. I mean, and just the notion of being inundated with advertisements. And if you go to Europe, to this day, you don't see the same degree of advertising. You don't see it on billboards. You don't see it driving around. You don't see it, you know, that constant inundation. In America, it's just an onslaught. And I think, you know, we were kind of unprepared for it, right? I mean, there were no uh, regulations, it felt like. You know, think about for how long, you know, cigarettes were advertised on television. I mean, and they were some of the biggest advertisers in the world. Billions and billions of dollars were spent on television advertising, you know, basically something that's going to kill you. Right. But yeah, you're, we, I think we were the first culture that was just totally immersed in advertising culture. But what's it like when it doesn't work, you know, like... That house ultimately didn't make you happy, and you're you're falling short of what you're saying, what you're seeing on TV played out daily. Yeah. Whether it's a sitcom, they're happier than I am, or I wash my shirt with Tide and it still didn't make me happy. You know, like what? Yeah. There's a real emptiness at the back end of all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's true. I think America is an incredibly comparative culture. Like we are just constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We're not actually very rarely living in the moment where we're just saying, am I happy now? Am I satisfied? Am I challenged in some right. way? We're just, that person has more than me. That, yes. You know, that person mm. has two houses. That person has a boat and two houses, you know, whatever yeah. it is, you know. And so you're constantly sort of geared to think in those terms, to think materialistically. And mm. that obviously is what fueled the post-war economy. But yeah, it led to a lot of dissatisfaction and it led to, you know, the one of the things that I did talk about in the Burbs uh, catalog, this uh, exhibition that we did at DFN, was the notion that, you know, the father figure is leaving for most of the day. He's gone. 
he disappears. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, he comes back. And the family has remained more or less intact in one way or another. And the father is actually a kind of alien character. Mm-hmm. And he's supposed to be the, you know, the enforcer to some degree, the disciplinarian. Wait until your father gets home. Exactly, yeah, of right. course. You hear that term over and over again to the point where it becomes a joke. But it actually was true. And I think it made for you know a very sort of splintered emotional life for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, yeah. So you know all these things led to the sort of fracturing of family, I think, and, and also just creating a system of values that isn't particularly healthy. It doesn't mean right. that it's awful. It doesn't mean that people are bad. It just means that it was, it was a, a huge experiment that nobody knew was really happening. It was like yeah. everybody jumped into this weird Petri dish and we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, totally. I think your paintings are very like specifically American in that way. Like how it, you know, it's like New York in a way, like America's such a pressurized from Puritans coming over to postmodern thinking to religious stuff to advertising to P.T. Barnum. It seems like every we've always been off kilter and a little out of control and a little competitive, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I really, I like that about your work. It conveys so much with like a vacuum cleaner, someone touching a house. You feel all that in it, you know? Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I find myself thinking, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you, you know, you're watching some, you know, documentary about an Amazonian tribe and they look so happy. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. They have like so little in their life, except they have like this incredible bond to each other and to their environment like mm. and there's like it seems like they kind of have a better life yes right. they may not live as long or who knows maybe they do i don't know i mean but they seem to be living a healthy life but you find yourself thinking god what an incredibly screwed up system you know yeah. culture right. that sort of creates this this need for things that you don't need you know, uh-huh. and these aspirations that you don't have and well that was Karl marx he said capitalism doesn't create products that creates wants yeah so needs, it's like yeah. you're manufacturing the need for something first yeah constantly bunch yeah. of communists <laughs> <You're Marxist>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which is okay in our country now yeah. they can even buy our government I was reading this article about, um, just the concept of work you know it, it, people are completely okay with spending most of your day doing something you don't like just to get some a, a little bit of what you may like right uh, you and go to the job that keeps makes you sleep home to the thoughts that keep you awake something like that <laughs> there you, go. Yeah. you go into credit debt to yeah and we completely bought that idea oh it's much worse now than it ever was I, I remember when I was a kid my father would go on a vacation with us and he, we would go for five weeks and he would not call his office. He couldn't be gotten in touch with. There was no texting. There was no nothing. They just left uh, him alone for five weeks. Wow. And then he'd come back completely refreshed and jump back into the job. I love That's it. That's not possible. I mean, you're just, you're on your phone constantly communicating with people. You're always yeah. working. It just never stops. Well, that's wow. what I love so much about this summer painting off grid at Caitlin Hurd's yeah. Uh, artist off grid uh, residency. I had no internet or anything, oh, and yeah. I mean, I could call my husband if I went up on the hill or whatever. But um, 
you know, at Send certain at certain signal. moments, if I was lucky to get a signal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I was, I felt so relieved. I felt yeah. so relieved. I was like, oh, yeah. suddenly I feel like I can think, you know, I don't have constant interruptions going on or this constant buzz of like, what, what do I need to look up on Google now? You know? Right. No, I know. And then you also stop going for that dopamine hit of like Instagram likes and you're like, yeah, Why do I care. No, yeah. yeah. Do like do somebody, care? somebody just defriended me <laughs> woe be gone because of it you know, it's right. crazy it makes what, no what is your version of a vacation I know you go out to the lake sometimes we go up to New Hampshire um, most summers and just spend a few weeks up there which is fantastic it's not you know internet free so you know we mm. still it's too easy to get in touch with us still but we did spend a few days we went to Tamlin uh, her place at Cuddy Hunk oh, Tamlin Baumgarten yeah, yeah and we she invited us there for a few days and it was great because you couldn't get any reception at uh, all huh. so you just were like walking around and reading uh, books and there was nothing to do but uh, look at beautiful things sleep late and eat well I'm just you know? relaxing <laughs> hearing yeah. that you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so nice well James on a previous podcast has talked James Adelman Edelman was talking about how he turns his phone off in the studio oh, does he? and even that it was like it was I felt so dumb that I never thought of it, you know? Yeah. And then it's like a little scary to turn off because it's like, what, you know, you'll get the call or whatever. And so, but I've been doing that lately and people are getting upset with me because they're like, where were you? Oh, I know. And I'm like, well, my friend told me to turn my phone off when I'm in the studio. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to get a hold of you. But if you are not always available, it's considered like like an affront somehow. Yeah, it's weird. I've had a few scrapes where people are like, are you mad at me? I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? It was like two hours. Right. I didn't respond to you. Are you kidding me? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're always on a leash. That's, yeah, that's it's what it is. Constantly... I love the idea of Rembrandt constantly like checking his phone as he's painting yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, imagine. I mean, I even the first studio that I had in New York, <clears throat> this is pre-cell phones, but it was in Bedford Stuyvesant. It was in a kind of bad neighborhood, but it was so cheap. It was like a hundred dollars a month for five hundred square feet. Wow! So that you barely incredible. even had to make money to cover yeah. things like that. And but I didn't have a landline, and people would, you know, if they wanted to get in touch with me, they'd have to leave a message on my message machine at home, which I would collect once a day. Yes. So you'd wow. be working the entire time without any interruption uh, at all. It was amazing. Wow. We should totally revert back to that. Yeah, we have Can to. we just have yeah. answering machines again? The old tapes. Answering yeah. Machines. Yeah. So if you didn't get in touch with somebody in eight hours, that was fine. Yeah. yeah, it was no big deal. We have to retrain people. Yeah, hey, that's yeah. Okay. psychologically, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, we're so far gone, man, and it's only getting, it's only ramping up more and more. No, they're going to be implants. You know, exactly. Oh, no, I believe uh, Amazon has uh, <laughs> uh, their vision, or they already have built a supermarket where, um, yeah, people just have implants. A so chips. you don't. Have, there's no checkout lines. You just go in. <laughs> pick up whatever you want and you walk up. That wow. is literally... That's so scary. The end of civilization. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. dad was a pretty significant conspiracy theorist real 
right wing guy, mm-hmm. and that was his idea of Mark of the Beast. Like he knew that that was coming. <laughs> <Mark> <laughs> and he would call that. He was always scared of like six 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 and that. And I could just imagine if he sees a commercial for Amazon's barcode, he's gonna. Just that constant monitoring. I mean, Janice. I always joke that you know. Janice would make a great spy because she just like she's a great researcher, and uh, you know you can you know you can track anybody basically if you yes. know how to use. She's phones. not a spy. She's not. <laughs> she sort of is. <laughs> she's listening in, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Where, where is she? She's probably around the corner or something. Can you uh, you always uh, talk about how important like artist friendships are, and you've had some really amazing ones over the years: Mark Tanzi, Eric Fischel, Alex Konevsky, Leslie Dill. Can yeah. you talk about like how you guys have influenced each other? Because I do like see some similarities, like between you and Eric Fischel, of course, and also the intellectual aspect of Mark Tanzi's work and, and yours makes sure. sense. Like. How have you guys influenced over t- influenced each other over time and like supported each other and? What- well, it's funny. I mean, somebody like Eric is somebody who I've only gotten to know through the academy. It's really oh, only been okay. the last seven years. Okay, and you know he's an amazing artist, and I think he's somebody who's definitely had a, an effect on my work. Funny, uh, you know, when I first got out of school, I was uh, a master printer for uh, uh, an art print publisher called Aeropress and Eric was one of the artists that worked there but this was very early on in his career and I actually wasn't involved in his project but it was the first time that I heard about this guy Eric Fischel back in like 1981 or 2 or something like that Um, Mark is somebody that I got to know through this gallery Kurt Marcus gallery and I got to know John Bowman in some ways through them or through Mark um, Annie Showstrom, uh, you know, a, a bunch of artists, Bob Yarber, that were sort of, you know, all, they all had lofts in Tribeca. I was living in the East Village. Um, you know, I was starting to show through the East Village scene. And, you know, when I moved to Kurt Marcus Gallery, I basically sort of got in touch with this whole other community of artists. And <clears throat> they became really important to me. I mean, in many ways, you know, we, you know, we, have reading groups together. Um, we'd get together, you know, to discuss ideas, you know, it, always with bars involved. So oh, I was going to say a few drinks. Drinking and smoking between. and whatever else. <laughs> but, you know, earlier than that, for me, my first experience of this really was getting involved in the East Village art scene. It was a scene that was driven by artists. It wasn't driven by the marketplace. You know, it was at a time when you could live cheaply in the East Village and the Lower East Side. So a lot of it had this kind of demographic connection. Um, the artists didn't actually have that much in common with each other, and it's not that I stayed in touch with too many of them, but some of them I did. You know, people that I, I was showing with Deborah Sharp Gallery at that time, and I'm still in touch with you know Arthur Gonzalez, who's one of the artists that was in the gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, but that whole scene was really a hyper hyper social scene, and it was the type of thing that you know. If you heard somebody was putting a group show together, you could get in touch and be a part of it. You know, it was very easy to write for magazines at the time. Like I, I, you know, Michael Cohn, who was actually the editor, the American editor of Flash Art at that time, he had a gallery in the Lower East Side or in the East Village. 
And we were talking one day, and I said something funny about Peter Schiff, and he said, oh, you should write reviews for Flash Art. Huh. And so I started writing reviews. It's, like, it's not like I needed anybody's permission or I, or I needed any particular skill set. It was huh. just sort of like everything was available. Everybody was trying everything. And it was so it was a really, for me, that was the first time that I recognized that that model is so important of artists getting together, of artists generating generating possibilities for each other, you know, where it's all interconnected. The musicians knew the theater people, who knew the film people, who knew the painters, who knew the people who owned the bars. And, hmm. you know, later on, you know, one of the owners of Limbo Lounge, which was one of the hotter kind of nightclub bars at the time in the East Village, was a guy named Michael Gormley who became the dean uh, yeah, Gormley, of the of academy. Yeah. So he was the person who first hired me, Catherine, and Mark to teach at the academy back in 2001. Oh, wow. So all these things, it's just, you know, you have this network of people that always kind of revisit each other, that always kind of support each other. That's hmm. so cool. Yeah. So great. And do you feel like you influence each other's work in any way? or I mean, Yeah, I'm- definitely. You know, I think that, you know, Mark Tanzi's way of assembling pictures became really important to me. That he, okay. I mean, he thinks much more about, I think, the theoretical underpinnings of his work and sort mm-hmm. of how he, in some ways, is always at odds with current critical theory. Mm-hmm. Like he's always trying to comment on it, and that's something that actually hasn't interested me. I'm much more interested in sort of the emotional undertone of the work and okay. how that affects me. You know, I'm, I'm more instinctive in that respect. I think probably John Bowman and I are are probably a little bit closer in mm-hmm. terms of how we think about pictures and what what's really the motivation behind our pictures. Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah, I mean, having those communities has, you know, I remember one time I was feeling really crappy about myself and I, <clears throat> I was at a post opening party and John, I was sitting next to John and he, he noticed that I was just feeling glum and he said, he turns to me, he said, where else would you rather be? What else are you going to do? And I was like, it's absolutely right. There isn't anything else I'd rather do. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, you're going to have ups and downs, but your colleagues, your friends will recognize that and, and recognize that just because you're having a down moment in your career or whatever doesn't mean that that's going to remain that way. You know, right. they're the people that can pick you up and, you know, create opportunities for you. So mm. they kind of a lifeline for you absolutely is there have been so many times where i just felt like if i didn't have those friendships i just don't know how i could handle being in the worst aspects of the art world you know the things that are you know you know that just that aren't driven by ideas or visual culture they're just driven by the marketplace by the almighty dollar yeah yeah and you know there's i mean there there is in the art world now, I believe, you know, at the top of the collecting pinnacle, probably a couple of hundred people that are buying things for, you know, 20 to $40 million. They are frequently trustees at museums. If they're not that, they're backing major galleries. <clears throat> they're always buying amongst each other, and they're smart enough to not to dump things on the marketplace. They release work very carefully. They maintain the market value of the work. 
and it's all a form of insider trading that everybody knows about. Mm. I guess it, you know some people claim it's not insider trading because it's so out in the open. There's no secret to it. Everybody's doing this. Right. It's just there's no other investment that is controlled by so few people and so tightly. You know, mm. they're in, they're involved. In, you know, it's like the museums, the galleries, the auction houses are all basically collaborating to maintain this bubble at the top you know if you think it's about sort it of mafia. speaking of um it's like a mafia. leonardo painting yeah of course what, yeah. what is your opinion on that fake or i think fake? it's probably something that he may have touched in the early stages and was probably put on a shelf and that you know other people came in and did the finishing work and then it's been restored so many times that there's probably very little that's recognizably da vinci But there's no reason for it to have sold for what was it, 455 million or whatever. It was I mean, a Russian oligarch, right? Who actually sold it. made his money, um, started making money uh, selling fertilizer, something along really? those lines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. again, those are things that it, it in the past when these bubbles would happen, people weren't smart enough to protect their investments. So they would unload things you know, on the marketplace all at once and the entire system would kind of collapse. Mm -hmm. And then it would take a long time for people to have faith in the marketplace again and they would come back to it slowly. Now at the very top of that pinnacle, that pyramid, whatever it is, you know, these people have learned from the past. They know that this is an investment that they can protect. If you think about it, you can't do that with stocks and bonds. You can't do that with real estate because there are too many players. Mm -hmm. With this, yeah. because there's such a small community that can collect on that level, you know, they can maintain this, you know, absurd price structure. Do you feel like, um, like your lens on consumerism in your artwork is a kind of sort of meta message about that kind of consumerism that's going on in art? Uh, to a degree, but I'm, you know, I don't really see myself as, a, um, you know, as a critique of the marketplace, really. I have my problems with the marketplace, mm. but I accept the idea of living in a capitalist system. Mm. I accept the idea that I'm happier if I'm selling paintings that I make because right. it helps me to spend more time in the studio and to do the things that I really love. Right. Mm. So, you know, I just, I have no complaint with that aspect of the structure. What, what bothers me is I keep seeing, you know, serious galleries, you know, that have been working for years that are having to either downsize mm. or get out of the business altogether because it's just too hard to keep things going. They can't compete. You know, right. the, the investors tend to be investing in emerging artists as a form of speculation mm -hmm. or blue chip galleries as a form of guaranteed value. Isn't that some of that just due to the Internet? I mean, people are buying paintings right off Instagram. I don't know if that I don't know how much that's affecting it. I, okay. I mean, I know that, you know, that is that kind of thing is happening. But um, I feel like the Internet right now, Instagram and Facebook or whatever else, it seems to be more how you project yourself out into the world. And it, it okay. makes pe more people aware of the kind of work that you're doing. You know, mm -hmm. I think that that, you know, seeing how galleries are taking advantage of that, individual artists, consultants, curators, that, that all sort of makes sense to me. It's still very hard to sell paintings without people seeing them unless mm. it's somebody whose work is so consistent that you know exactly what you, you're going to get. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm happy to hear you say that. Because I always, I see paintings on the internet and I 
fall in love with the imagery, of course, but then I'm a, I have no idea what the painting actually looks like, and I, I yeah. can't talk, I can't write or speak about the work unless I've See had person. a direct experience with it, because something that has a lot of paint on it, you would never know that, you know, on a Yeah, yeah. if you're talking picture. about, you know, impasto, if you're talking, I mean, anything, really. But, you know, the thing that I'm maybe more concerned with is just, you know, the effect that the art fairs are having on galleries. The mm. galleries are getting to the point, I think, where they're thinking, many of them, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to five, six, eight, you know, art fairs a year. That means mm-hmm. I'm not actually in the gallery that often. You know, I mm-hmm. have to have assistant directors, you know, handling sales or something like that. Maybe I'd be better off if I only went to art fairs, you know, that if yeah. I got rid of the brick and mortar space. But I think if you're going to have a real dialogue with the community, having work up for a month actually makes a difference. You know, it right. allows people yeah. to see it once or twice or to see it for a longer period of time or just to come back to it. But in art fair, it's like you're either all in or you're not, you know? Yeah. And it's just this sensory overload that we were talking oh, about before. Totally, yeah. Because you, you, like, where do you see art's role in the community in that way? Do you see it as like something to inform a community, just entertain a community? Do you see it as a, think, a tool to elevate people? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, a challenge to the community is is important. You know, and there are all sorts of different challenges, right? You know, intellectual challenges. You know. Um, conceptual challenges, emotive challenges, and I think you know having a lively art exhibiting community does that. You know, yeah, if you if sure you feel does. like you can go around and be stimulated by the work that you see, you know, <laughs> one thing that I've always sort of joked about would be imagine how different would this may sound like I'm straying, but imagine how different it would be if you could go to a Whitney Biennial that was curated by a figurative artist. Think of how different it would look. That mm. would be a challenge that the Whitney doesn't accept right now. Right. You know, they're, what they do accept is the notion of people coming from curatorial programs, coming with, you know, a sense of, you know, critical theory and, you know, their place in contemporary culture, but no real interest in, you know, the history of art making. Many of them don't even have art history degrees. Or knowledge you know, of art or history. Or knowledge of art history. Or even a knowledge of object making. I mean mm. many are anti anti object, let alone painting, you know, representationally. Right. But imagine how interesting a challenge it would be to the Whitney to actually say, Okay, yeah, we are gonna you know, we're gonna get, you know, the the gals from PPOW gallery. We're gonna get, you know, George Adams to, you know, curate, uh, you know, a Whitney Biennial, it would be unlike any biennial that you've ever seen. Let's and do that, it. That's a challenge they should <laughs> accept. That, that's something that they should say, all right, what, how are we not challenging ourselves? You know, otherwise you're going to get the same kind of show over and over and over again. Regurgitated, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Can, uh, we don't have that much t- more time, but I just want to ask you one more question about... Um, like you're using acrylics in a way that someone would be using oils, and I'm just interested in like how that's developed over time as the material has developed over time. Like the yeah. meth, the, the the things that are available in acrylics now are just amazing. And and what is your methodology for translating 
you know, working indirectly and with glazes and all of that in acrylics, which just seems so counterintuitive to what the medium is. Well, it's, I think at first it's a form of perversity. Like, I actually <laughs> did want to, like, make this material do something it wasn't well-suited to do. Like, there was just, uh, like, it. there was just part of me that, you know, enjoyed that perverse challenge. But it also started because when I first started working with acrylic, I was using it really as the just the first layers that I was sanding through. Mm. So I could put them on very, very thinly, and it would lose a lot of its binding power, which made it easier to sand through than if I was working with oil. Okay. So in some ways, at first, it was just a solution to a technical problem that I had that was particular to me. Okay. Mm. And then I started using it, and I was like, wow, man, I'm feeling so much healthier because I'm not using oil paint because this is like total no-no but i would have like giant coffee cans open with turpentine in them like three or four at a time with my brushes in them yeah and like the whole studio just smelled like turpentine and then i was using alkyd mediums and huge amounts of galkid for final varnishes and things like that so i was like around toxic materials all the time oh my gosh and i did notice almost immediately when i started working with with acrylic i was like wow I feel so much better. Ah. <laughs> I would try using Galkit again afterwards. It was just like I almost would pass out. I couldn't believe how how strong the smells were. Wow. wow. So part of that was just like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I can learn from this. Maybe I'm sort of like, there's a sign here. <laughs> and so I did sort of perversely try to find ways to paint, you know, more or less the way you would paint in oil but with acrylic. And it just—it was just finding the right combination of materials. It was finding the right ground to work on. Mm. Um, all these things were just things that I was experimenting with. And I'd pick up a little bit. I'd see somebody working with something, and I'd give it a try. You know, and I'd, I found certain brushes that just happened to work with me. You know, I looked into a bunch of materials that were—you uh, know—the nice thing about acrylics is it's a relatively new material, so they're there's a lot of room for invention so right. they just keep playing around with it so the you know the people at golden the people at liquitex the pe- even the people at art gara's shop on 13th street they're all like mad scientists they just yeah like doing, i've been in there it looks oh my God, like nuts right crazy like it's a try giant, this and yeah. try that right and, and they want to see you just describe your problem to them like oh well put a little bit of retarder in put a little bit of anti-foaming agent and you know they'll just make Wow. So amazing. Well, that makes sense because the way you work with this, this almost like scientific way of with the macro lens and everything. So you're like a scientist with the with the material as well. So the technical narrative is really married to the conceptual and the and the and the paint and the, and the way you handle the paint. So that's kind of interesting how that all comes that's, that's all kind of interconnected that way. I've never really thought of it that way, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that's important for me is that I really approach painting strategically. Like I am not a tactical thinker. I don't like change my paintings radically in the middle of the painting. I don't learn from the process of the painting in that way. I I think of painting more the way a fresco painter would think about painting. It's like you have a giornata and you're getting your day's work done and you're trying to do it as magically as you can. But you know it's about accomplishing something. It's trying to get something to look the way that you want it to look. I I have very few romantic impulses when it comes to 
my approach to painting. You know, that I, one of the things that was like a central part of the painting program at Pratt when I was there was finding yourself in the process of painting. It was a very old sort of, you know, abex thinking, way of thinking about painting. And I just always resisted that. I really was more about planning and executing. That's what I was saying in the questions. Like, it's the whole Apollonian versus Dionysian way of thinking. You're totally 100% Apollonian. I have, like, no Dionysian in me (laughs) at all. I mean, that way I'm like, I couldn't be more boring. But I think, you know, some part of being an artist is finally accepting who you are. Right, and finding what works for you, right? If you're a tight ass, be a tight ass. You know? <laughs> Make tight ass paintings. You know? That's that is where we have to end this podcast. <laughs> okay, that's that's the final word. Be a tight ass. Embrace your tight assedness. <laughs> Peter, thank you uh, so thank you, much Peter. for this sharing is great. your life, your process. You know, explaining to us about all the different hats you wear, which is tremendous and corollary to the fact that you do actually wear a lot of hats it's significant of who you are but i also i do appreciate you guys doing this i think it's a great thing to do i think again it's a way of identifying your community and respecting your colleagues it's i i really appreciate it well we have great admiration for you and uh, absolutely i have to say we're we're a little nervous but (laughs) oh really no it didn't seem that way He cleaned up the house. (laughs) I don't do that for anybody. (laughs) I don't even do that for my wife. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And please tell Janice we said thank you for lending lending you to us tonight. She'll appreciate that. All right. I'll share that with her for sure. We had a great time talking to Peter Drake. You can find out more about Peter on his website, peterdrakeartist.com and at Peter Drake Art on Instagram. You can find us on our website, artgrindpodcast.com, and on Instagram at artgrindpodcast. Thanks for listening to Art Grind Podcast. Stay on the grind while we feed your mind. Mm-hmm.